This episode is sponsored by Arc IT, and you'll find out more about them later on in the episode. Hi there, I'm Evan Troxel. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the Troxel Podcast. My name is Evan Troxel. In this episode, I welcome Rob Asher, and Rob is the CEO of Giraffe. If you haven't heard of Giraffe, Giraffe is a software platform for people who want to make better cities. It allows designers to automate expertise and apply it at scale. In a blog post on LinkedIn, Rob describes Giraffe as something that looks like a drafting tool but is closer to Salesforce than it is to SketchUp. It includes API-driven data management for people, projects, and layers, and is where massive value is unlocked for cities. He says it's kind of boring, but well-thought-out data management is one of the hardest things to do. In our conversation, we cover a big range of topics, including how Rob pivoted from mainly competition design work in Australia into the world of software development, and more specifically about how getting a math degree turned out to be the best thing ever. We also cover topics like David Rutten's genius and creation of Grasshopper, building tools that encourage interactivity, how buildings equal narrative, and we also cover what the most important skill is for a designer. So I'll leave it on that cliffhanger right there. I loved this conversation with Rob. It was so much fun. And actually, it came out of Rob responding after hearing Anthony Houck's episode. So there's definitely some parallels that Rob saw in Anthony's story. And I thought it was great that he wanted to tell his story. And again, it was just so much fun to talk to Rob. It was a great conversation. I hope that you enjoy it too. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Rob Asher. Rob, welcome to the podcast. So great to see you. And uh, you are also on the other side of the world from me. So tell everybody where you're coming from and who you are. Yeah, thank you. I'm uh, I'm in Sydney, Australia. So it's I think it's my morning and your evening. We're other side of the world, other side of the clock. Right. Um, talking, you know, we we have been working on a, a giraffe, this sort of technology, this down under a giraffe, but it's from Australia. I probably should have called it kangaroo, mm. although that was taken. That's taken. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, you kept it in the theme though of of. I I did. We did keep it in the theme. Yeah, it was either going to be wobbegong or giraffe. And a wobbegong is like a small whale, like it's a small, maybe it's a shark, a small yeah. aquatic creature. Uh-huh. <laughs> we thought that wouldn't cut through as well. Well, it sounds way more Australian. So it is, it is, it is way more Australian. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> it's so many syllables. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of opportunity for mispronunciation, I'm sure. Giraffes, right. you, you know it when you see it. Uh, that's a good thing. Yeah. So, Rob, you, you've had kind of an interesting path. I mean, you, you've gone from, you know, working as a design architect for a couple different firms over a span of a decade plus, and you've gone, you've taught computational design, and now you're running a, a startup that is kind of wor- working on building tools that help people design better cities. If that's a decent enough summary, real quick. Yeah, that's awesome. I would love to talk to you about how that all transpired because, like, one of the things, a theme that is recurring is that. You know, this is the famous one of the famous Steve Jobs quotes out there, which is, you you know, it's easy to connect the dots looking backwards, but you can't do it looking forward. So connect those dots for us. Take us back to kind of 
how you got to where you are and, and kind of build that thread for us. Because I think a lot of people think about this potential opportunities out there to do something similar. I would love it if you would, like I have in some other episodes, like with Anthony Hauk and people like that, where they they went into technology, but it's in the service of architecture and city planning and things like that, and and how that actually transpired. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Like, I think there's sort of a couple of different threads to that story. And the first one is, I really believe in the professional goal of serving the society we're in. So like architecture, making better cities. And when I think of better cities, I think of happier people mm-hmm. with less travel time and frustration and healthy environments and all these things that were actually like buildings, qua buildings, like, uh, you know what it called, say like magnificent forms in light or the play of light on form. Like that's awesome. But what's far more awesome is like a functional, you know, societies that are supporting relationships. And, and so that is, I think, and then I, I think I get from my dad. I mean, that's like a sort of a baseline. But then underneath that, like, what is design? What do you do? And I started off, you know, very undecisive. So I, I started doing, a, I did a year of architecture and I thought it's too specific for me, too practical. So I went and did a pure maths degree and a philosophy degree and I did my honours in philosophy. And then I thought, well, I'm now too unemployable. So I came back. And I finished architecture, wow. so the undergraduate component. So we do a, a bachelor's and then a master's, and so I, which I've never done the master's. And I think um, that actually served me incredibly well. Mm. You know, both maths and philosophy about getting to like a high level of generality about things. You know, if you understand maths, you understand programming. And so then I could jump into architecture. And it was just at the time when uh, Grasshopper was starting to become quite big i guess mm-hmm. so the first one i learned was generative components i don't know if people remember that one mm-hmm. it was a visual programming language and and i sort of i taught it to myself on one summer break and came back into the office and then uh, they wouldn't buy me a, a pc because it was an, a, a mac office i was working at this design firm as a designer you know using archicad doing competition sort of work and then i found grasshopper and voraciously what I did to teach myself is I'd go to that forum, that Ming, there was this green website, yep. which is now, it looks way more schmidt. And there's like this little sidebar where people would put complex geometries yep. and there would be like photos of the day. And every day I would look at that geometry and I would build a script to reproduce it. And oh, I would wow. feel very bad if I didn't. And I'd feel really good if I did. So I was just so dedicated and motivated. I thought this thing was fantastic. And at this point, it was a pure game, right? It was forms and light. I was, we were, I was using, you know, Grasshopper to, to make really complicated geometries, you know, beautiful, sweeping uh, sort of Zaha Hadid style, you know, not comparing myself to her at all, but that sort of language of that parametricism, I guess, mm-hmm. um, which Grasshopper sort of facilitates in competitions. Mm-hmm. So I was at that firm, which was a sort of a, a top tier design firm in Sydney for a for about five years, and then I jumped across to to Cox Architecture, which is a, another firm in Sydney, and kept doing competition. But I guess as you get more senior and you engage with clients more, architecture is starts to sort of distill, and it becomes way less about the geometry and way more around the function. So back to that, like, how's it going to serve people? How's it going to be used? How's it going to be economic? And what I found very quickly was that those grasshopper scripts, you know, I guess Grasshopper teaches you to iterate and program very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. You just write a new script for every, you know, everything you do. <laughs> yeah. 
you can't reuse it because it's a massive spaghetti, so you have to start again. So you actually get quite good at, at working quickly. Yeah. Those same principles could then be used to write software that I don't think exists to answer those questions, right? I didn't see it existing. There was no, like Revit's not good for early phase design. Even Rhino is too abstract. You know, you can build a, a yacht and a shoe and a, and a building. General so you purpose. want something, yeah. it's too general purpose, right? It's, too, it's just pure geometry. So yeah. you wanted something that was like had net lettable area as a first class citizen because that's a first class citizen of any architectural discussion yeah. uh, plus a whole bunch of other things. And so we started building that software and that was, you know, ultimately became Giraffe. And I think we eventually, you know, Cox was super supportive of us. They, they gave us a mile of rope. They loved what we were doing. But eventually we needed to jump out to do this this thing, yeah. I think a professional services model and a software business are, are different. They have different capital requirements. They have different economics. They have different skill sets. They market themselves differently. And so it made more sense to jump out and, and do it ourselves. And, you know, whilst we were doing that, I guess the, the other thing that was, so whilst I was at Cox, we were actually building the computational design sort of function of that business. Like, I guess I'm old enough to be a senior computational designer, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm young, I'm 34. So I'm young enough to be, you know, have been on the tools with Grasshopper from when I was very young, but I'm old enough that, you know, so we were recruiting a bunch of computational designers and, uh, and me and a, a guy called Andrew Butler there sort of built that team up to about 20. And part of the way we did that is we actually started running a lot of the courses of the, uh, a degree called computational design at UNSW. And so with one of the professors there, and so we taught it a lot. And that's been super interesting because, you know, when you're teaching these students who are young, it's just great, right? You get students, they come into the, in, they sort of, they don't, you know, there's, there's the way we do society now. Like you don't, you don't work. Well, it's, very, it's unusual to work seriously before you go to university and then you sort of go choose your path. Mm-hmm. And so you haven't really seen the other side and right. like what it feels like to be at a desk for five years and like, are you going to love this? Are you going to hate it? What does it even feel like? Yeah. So, you know, trying to help them think through what they're wanting to be doing as people, yeah. but then also in the context of this profession that is just, it's being upended. Like it re- this disruption you know, everyone says disruption, disruption, and I sort of, you don't want to believe it as much, but it really is the, the way technology is being used is, is upending the way clients engage with consultants. The consultants do, you know, engage with each other, but the, the type of capital that these different sides need to deploy. So you're trying to prepare them for a future that's kind of radically changing in front of your eyes, and um, which is really exciting, but also, also, like, what do you teach them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so I, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's sort of where I came from and, and have arrived at. Now what we're doing is, is building software that if we're successful, supports designers make great cities. Like So coming back to that original drumbeat, which is that this profession exists, like it's only valuable to the extent that it's creating places that allow human flourishing. Like, mm-hmm. And if it's not doing that, it's sort of we're all wasting our time. Mm-hmm. We should just, you know live in shipping containers or, or whatever the most profitable, you know, yeah. um, profitable to whoever like configuration of matter is like, let's do that. And, and that's whether there's technology or no technology, the same goal is human flourishing. And I think that's got to be the, the baseline. Yeah. I love how you call that the, the original drum beat, uh, because yeah. if that is kind of your 
your company's party diagram. Like, are we fulfilling that mission? Are we enabling people to do that thing? That's a great thing to always be able to kind of use as that guidepost to see if you're still on the right track and that you're doing yeah. what, you, what you set out to do. It sounds though, like, like when you were at Cox, you were, you, you talked about the disruptive nature of these technologies and how they are upending the profession, it sounds like they at least gave you the ability to explore that and to integrate it into their practice. And so I was wondering, like, before you decided that the best move was to jump off on your own, which I would love to talk to you about kind of that process and what you wrestled with there. Mm -hmm. But before that, did you really see them welcoming this and fostering this attitude of, let's design our future here now, or was it like just letting kids play at the <laughs> over in the studio or what was it like? Because I, I know, I know there's varying degrees of that throughout the, the profession of kind of acceptance of that disruption. And should we be a part of designing what it is or should we just yeah. wait for it to come? And then we won't know where, where we fit in. So what was it like for you guys? So I think they were incredibly surprised supportive right and and of course like a, across a company like cox there's people that love technology and there's people that are not interested in technology so of course there's varying degrees of interest in what we were doing so you know some people are like I, I i i'm i see the value it works really fast i don't understand it and i i think i'm, I'm not going to so continue but you know a sort of from afar whereas some you know some of the directors and some of the staff like just you know couldn't wait to dive in. I felt very lucky to be there. I felt there was a huge, there was a, a deep understanding from the leadership that this technology change was coming, you know, and was here and needed, we needed to obviously engage with it. Um, obviously, I'm much more, my voice is much more insistent and, and shrill on that. Like I'm, I think it's it's the thing, right? Whereas for a big firm, a, a design firm, a professional services firm, the drumbeat there is is also project work. Like that's another drumbeat, right? That you've got to you've got to be winning and delivering work. And this is part of what I, you know, why it's it's good to be a startup, right? Because it cuts off those things that make it difficult to build technology, right? So there's like a structural thing, right? So there was, I think there was a huge amount of support and as much as they could, they did. And I think they are, you know, Cox is still developing technology. Like it's awesome. But the, just because of what it is, it could never be a startup, right? Because it had, you know, all these hundred staffs and these premises and these relationships and insurances, whereas a startup can just get rid of all that and, and be super, super um, flexible and, and nimble, whatever, you know, all these things people say about startups are true, right? There's no management, there's no budgeting, there's no, none of that stuff. And so there's a degree of freedom and speed, which allows a creative process to happen, which I think needs to happen. And maybe, so yeah, I don't know. One of the big challenges, I think, I think for the profession, like, you know, and we speak to sort of almost everyone, the question is going to be is, is can these big firms do technology or do they do technology internally? Do they, do they buy things like Revit or Giraffe? Is it some sort of a combination with a, you know, this hyper idea where they're building internal IP on the back of sort of infrastructure that facilitates it like hyper. And I think it's all, I think it's all up in flux. And I think, it's really deep because it comes down to how you bill, how you, you know, how you relate to your clients, how you ensure your work, how you collaborate with other consultants, like where you draw the line between, you know, what the deliverables are, like, you know, is a BIM model a legal 
drawing set. I don't even think often it is. Sometimes I know that it is, but you know, it's generally PDFs like are the only thing. Right. Like it all has to go to the PDF, and so which is it would be a, would be a massive constraint for Giraffe for us to build like a PDF generator. Like yeah. we've got a simple one that that sort of almost broke the dev team, right? But because we can say like we're, we're not about that, export to Rhino and go to PDF that way. We we free from that. So I think I think that's the big the big question. It's like and it, it comes down to like the future of white collar work. Like, you know, if you just sort of generalize and generalize, it's sort of the production line thing that happened to blue collar work. So I, my, my sort of, you know, I'm thumbnail history is of the labor movement basically is you world war two full employment, the economy just grows dramatically. And then they slowly automate um, blue collar robots start coming in the seventies. I think, you know, pretty widespread and manufacture. Mm-hmm. And and blue collar wages just they go through the floor, right? It, like people say, oh, automation's great. You know, we can do other stuff. Wasn't good for blue collar people. You know, mm-hmm. you get sort of this decline in wages. You know, coal mine. And I think well, I'm scared that the same thing's happening for white collar work. And I talk about the, the the knowledge production line, and it's automation. And I so there's that like there's like a bit of pepper in this discussion because it, it, there's a bit of threat, like. It's not all roses, I don't think. I think there is opportunity, but part of our mission as giraffe, because we think that humans, I don't want to see the human taken out of city making because I think cities are for humans, but I can see the economic pressure to take humans out because they're one of the most expensive components in this production line towards, which produces design documents, you know, or produces buildings. Yeah. And so... Yeah. So sorry, I've wondered there, but I think that Cox was, you know, is awesome and is wrestling with the the questions with you know with all their resources. Yeah. But for us, we had to. I think we had to jump out. I would like to get back to that idea about the role of technology. I mean, there's definitely, I think, more for that part of the conversation that we should save. So, so remind me if I don't bring it up. Yeah. But <laughs> so, try. so at some point, you decided to jump out of Cox. Was that partially because you kept building different tools every time you came up into a, and, and just real quick, you, you talk about competition work, like that's pretty standard practice. Like you were before the show, you were talking. So maybe explain that just for a moment so that people know what you mean when you say competition who are not Australian, you know, they don't know the lingo like, like you do in that case. For competition, as it was for me, was uh, a firm is winning work by entering design competitions Normally there's three competitors. Normally they're paid something, you know, a small amount. And um, there's like, you know, it's, it's this frenetic, you get six weeks or something and Fast you have pace. to come up with yeah. a design. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the winner gets the job. Right. right. So, uh, and that's, that's the way it, it happens in Australia. I think it's, it's a global phenomenon in Australia. There's a, you actually get additional floor space uh, if you do this competition process. So it's sort of across the board, sort of almost any sort of central development will go to competition. Okay. And so it's really fun, right? You throw ideas, you create narrative, you draw diagrams. It's super intense. You know, people are working all night, uh, you know, and it, it's fun. Like if you're a competitive person, it's yeah. it combines design, competition, camaraderie. Um, yeah, there's, there's got to be an, an amazing energy to that if you're in the, the yeah. right mindset for it and if you're built for yeah, that. Yeah, if, if that's right. And if you have a family, it's probably the worst thing. That, like, I, Luckily, I, I didn't have a family at that point, but you know, it, it would be really tough. Like, It's very intense. So 
Now, I actually didn't get frustrated. So what I did, right, so I, had a, I did this pure maths degree, which has actually turned out to be the best thing because if you know like vector cross product, right, with really simple vector maths, the whole of Grasshopper is basically obvious, right, because it's like, oh, they must have an affine transform or they must have these transformations mm-hmm. and or they must have a component that does this. So you, you double-click, you type in the thing you want, right. and it appears in Grayson. Like David Rutten's UX brain, it, he is a genius yeah. because you just teach yourself this thing. But especially if you've got a, 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 like a, a rigorous foundation in geometry and mathematics, because it's a geometry engine, it needs all the geometry functions, and, and there they are. You just type them in, and they, they appear. Yeah, that so, autocomplete is huge, right? <laughs> It's here. It's massive. Deal. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but if you don't know that vector cross product is called vector cross product, like if you're trying to find, you know, a vector normal to two vectors and you don't know it's called the cross product, like what do you type in? Yeah. But at least I knew it was cross. So I could just type in cross product and there's cross product. So it was awesome. Right. So I was coming from Grasshopper with like a really good foundation by chance, like because I got frustrated with architecture and did this maths degree. Mm-hmm. So I think I was a super user in the sense that I would cluster my work and I would version it. And so I had these super clusters mm-hmm. that got like version one, two, up to like 11. And I would use them all the time. And I would use them to do all my area calculations. I know some people do this. I know a lot of people don't. A lot of better programmers than me don't have the discipline to cluster and save. Mm-hmm. Like just cluster and save and iterate and save. Your future self will thank you yeah. so much. And so... <laughs> So I built these like clusters that essentially were a prototype of giraffe in Rhino, right? In Rhino Grasshopper. And then I would use them to drive competition models, you know, because competition models, they're always serving an economic purpose. So the areas have to stack up mm-hmm. financially and in 3D. Mm-hmm. And you're then using those to then create form and put facades on it and, and you know, get to materiality and architecture. But they're the same model, they're the, you know, because the facade has to be on the, the, the same building that's driving the financial model. So it's all the same. And so I would do that. And I think I eventually, so it wasn't so much frustration as I saw this huge opportunity mm. because then I was like, everyone must be doing this. Yeah. And to an extent they are. Like if you go, every firm's got their sort of giraffe, giraffe-esque, yeah. you know, take, right? Ours, like, ours is unique in its own way, right? Of course I'd say that. But I saw this opportunity. And so we pitched I'm quite I'm quite a pitchy guy. I can get quite sales. So I pitched a bunch of, of tier one engineers and said, I basically pitched the high power idea. I said, like, wouldn't it be cool if I had a model and I could hit a serv- an API service that you wrote, right? And like I'm like I'm nowhere as technical as as like uh, Ian or Anthony, but you know, you write your structural engineering API. I don't know what it does, you know, like it's too hard for me. I'm not gonna insure it. But and I could just hit it. Right. And then I could get your advice right. like in real time. And you could tell me how many square meters of plant. And they were like, yeah, great, great, great. So, you know, so, so, so we raised a bit of money and then I went to the government and they matched the money. And, and so we sort of, you know, I got my brothers and I got this little team and we started sort of prototyping this thing. And, and I was, I was, you know, learning JavaScript at this time and building these apps out in, um, in Mapbox and on the browser. And I was loving JavaScript. I think I still think it's my favorite programming language. It's just such a, the browser I think is, probably the coolest human invention of the past century. It's just so cool. Like when you get it, it's so good. It's like this document with video and model. It's like, oh, that's incredible. So it's also probably one of the biggest unsung heroes in tech companies because it makes them so much money. Oh, and it's just a given. 
(laughs) It's a given. No, and it it has to. Yeah. So the 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 reason Google gives it out, the commoditize your compliment argument, it's just it's interesting. So yeah, but but yes, that's right. So Chrome and it's a given, and it's in. It's I think the big the the giants actually they want you to be more online. The more online you are, the more money they make. The more searches you do. And so they try and make it easy as possible to get online. Yeah. So they make this, these awesome browsers for everyone. So it's great. Yeah. <laughs> and then we reap the benefits. Totally. Plus the GitHub, you know, plus the, the open source, like, which everyone in architecture is fascinated by, but no one's actually managed to sort of figure out how to, I don't know, duplicate or replicate. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Hyper are starting. But anyway, so, so I did that and, we, we, and then we got into an accelerator. So we believed in this thing. Like I knew it worked. I was working with clients with my little giraffe, my rhino giraffe, and I knew it just killed. And the, we would model in front of people. So I could go into a meeting and just model this form up. And then the client could say, I oh, know, change that. And I would just change it. And they were so happy. And so I was like, oh, this is, this is cool. Um, this is really cool. And, and then I just couldn't see myself doing the traditional thing, like, you know, getting a team and doing documentation and, and that sort of stuff. And so I jumped out yeah. and probably took too long, you know, in retrospect, mm. like we were too scared. It's a big thing jumping out of a, a firm. Like I think, you know, being in the cold is, is huge, like <laughs> meeting payroll. And it's not easy. It's, it's super fun. I, I really enjoy it, but it's not easy. And I think that the catalyst for us was we got, we, we pitched a, um, kind of like a white combinator style thing here in Australia called Startmate, which is like an accelerator, which gave us, you know, they give you $75,000 or something and sort of invest in your company. So we became a startup and then we could all go full time. So I guess I had a lot of energy, a lot of energy for this. And so I sort of, I was pitching sort of a whole bunch of people, government Startmate, and then because, because I believed in it and then there was a catalytic moment and I jumped out mm-hmm. um, so, so talk a little bit more about that fear that you had. I mean, you, you talked about that scariness of, of being off on your own. How did you, and, and maybe you don't want to talk about that, what that catalyst exactly is, but, or maybe you do, I don't know, but it's, it just seems like there, at some point you accepted that that was going to yeah. be the way forward for you. Yeah. I mean, I think I've always been a very, um, and I'm sure, you know, the directors I've worked with or people who've managed me will agree. Like I've always sort of done what I've wanted to do. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I think I'm a pretty good employee. I try and be good, but I always sort of, I'll, I'll be like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Like, you know, I'll, I'll let me know in a few days if I've done the wrong thing. So I'm, I'm very, um, I guess, uh, independent minded. So, so I've always trusted that, but then I've always been working in a big firm and I've really loved it. And I've, you know, and you're part of a team and it's great. And jumping out means you you don't have uh, you don't have that backup. That's yeah, the right. you know. So every decision you make, it's just you, right? It's like you can't be like, hey guys, should we do this? Like, or or, or defer to the person who thinks right. who's feeling the strongest. Um, and that's and that's you know that's not entirely true because we've got a team. Like we we jumped out together in Giraffe, yeah. but it was uh, it was much more that where it at the end of the day it's it's you. And so I think. It took me a long time to feel confident enough to. This is an interesting thing. This is actually good. This is good. This is like a therapy session. Yeah, good. Um, <laughs> Other people there, need there, it too. <laughs> yeah, there's this fear that I had of you put your when you're running your own business, you have to become the face of the business, right? So you have to be quite happy to be out in public, um, which I we wasn't happy. So you know, giraffe basically wasn't marketed because 
I sort of, I didn't feel confident that it looked right yet or that it was working right yet. So I think like experienced marketers will start marketing before the product exists. Yeah. Whereas the giraffe approach has been like, we're on version three or four of the product and we're only just starting marketing kind of thing. And you can see where it comes from, like, you know, back to the competition thing, you only show the client like the most polished, complete, edited, photoshopped images, like almost nothing raw goes out. It's all, and that's to, you know, control their expectations and, and build their trust and show your attention to detail and your professionalism and your judgment and how across everything you are from design to economics to graphics to, you know, to everything, which is the wrong ingredient. It's the wrong mentality for a, a startup where yeah. things are much rawer. You can make a mistake, like you can just do the wrong thing and then totally change your mind. It actually doesn't matter that much. But if you refrain from going public or, or being out there with what you're doing, you never finish. You know, the amount of work it is to build a piece of software is staggering. Like it is absolutely staggering. Yeah, I think most firms who who tinker with the idea of developing their own software have no understanding of that. Totally. And this, I think that that is very, very true. The amount of capital you need in terms of human, like, you know, you can easily spend $3 million, you know, of programmers and, and only build something very small, mm. right? Because the difference, this is the thing, the difference between a grasshopper script that works on this project you're working and a grasshopper script that's going to work on 10,000 projects or even 1 million projects without getting corner cases or hitting bugs is profound. Yeah. Like the, it's, it's like a hundredfold more effort to, to generalize it. Yeah. And people just don't get that. Yeah. So they say, oh, we've got a guy who does grasshopper scripts in our firm. Like, we'll just do it. Right? We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll do this. And you're like, yeah, you will for these but then you're going to hit an edge case. Yeah. You're going to go to the Northern Hemisphere and suddenly June is summer and you're going to have to build that little subroutine. Yeah. And then you go, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like programming for bad. autonomous vehicles, right? Like like the the level of scrutiny and consistency that is needed is, it's not even next level. It's like exponential next level yes. of what yeah. it needs to be. And there's so many, so much of code building that you can't use because it doesn't, allow for that level of scrutiny and consistency like you're limited in the libraries that you can use like there's yes. you're limited in how far things can look outside of their their area for for other information i mean it, it and so i think that there's kind of a similar idea here where you're talking about because one thing that's interesting to me about grasshopper scripts for instance it's like designers want to go to the edge cases immediately that's right. right exactly yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 no and and that's good like i like that like i think as this rapid prototyping tool grasshopper is the best like i always used to say that like we had this revit team obviously at cox and we'd always be doing interop and you know like we 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 wrote our own like to serialize to json and then take it to revit and then you know write a bit of a python script that um and you just do it per project because it's so cheap yeah. you're like okay, what, what data do you need for this project? All right, let's just invent a quick little data format and we'll put it in and then spit it out. And you can standardize it, but literally it's like 35 minutes of work just to start from scratch because Grasshopper is so incredible, which means that there's almost no penalty for starting again every time, right. especially in a consulting model where the client's expecting this thing to take, you know, four months of design, right? And then if, if one of the team is spending half an hour sort of setting this, this data process up, like it's totally reasonable. What's going to be interesting, right? So, so then let's say, let's say, okay, so it's half an hour to set that up. I say it's a million programmer hours 
to generalize it, right? And there's all these startups, you know, like, you know, at, with, you know, every day we've got, you know, two devs at the moment. So every, it's two two-person days every day of programming on this problem. Mm-hmm. At some point, there'll be a tipping point where those million hours are hit. And then maybe, right? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but maybe not. But but I do think there's a there's a complete misunderstanding of how capital intensive software development is. And I can hear like my team saying, dude, it's not that capital intensive. Like Instagram sold when they had 11 people, right? Like you can build Instagram with 11 programmers, but that's quite, you know, for a, even like for a big firm to say, hey, here's 11 people on the yeah, payroll, right. just building software. Right. That's actually a big deployment of capital. Totally. Yeah. Especially because you don't have the, it is a different skill. Like a software engineer is, is a specialist and, you know, you learn like, that's what I've learned as well is, is how much knowledge there is in a software engineer, which someone who uses Grasshopper doesn't need to think about. Like David Rutten, what he's part of what he's done so amazingly is he's just covered over the the difficult bits. So you like you draw three components and you get geometry and yeah. it appears and it renders and you're like, oh wow, this is easy. But to try try and like put that behind a password, like make a SaaS model, get that deployed, you know, do these security audits, like it suddenly it's like just to get that geometry, it's going to take you like you know a couple months. And you're just and you're trying up. to do the same thing, right? I mean, eventually that's your goal too. Is like just draw a sketch and boom, all the you know the area tabulation. Exactly, the co- that's and, right, and exactly. And yeah, what's and interesting is under- it's <laughs> not that different from architecture in general, which is li- you're trying to abstract this thing down to its most fundamental, easy to understand way to communicate a thing. Oh, yes, that's exactly right. But there's exactly nobody right. sees under the hood of how deep that actually goes and what it actually takes. And I yes. think at some point, you know, you, you just get numb to the process that you've learned. I mean, it it is difficult. It takes a long time to figure out and master. But then at some point, like you say, like the tide turns and you make it look easy. You're really you've yes. done it so many times, you've put in so many hours that yeah, it is easy, but you've gotten really good at abstracting data, yes. information, graphics, whatever those things are to ultimately make somebody feel like it's magic. That, well, I hope so. Right. That's our goal. And, and this is, and this, I think that that's, this is touching on like this interesting point where I think I said in that email to you that the, the senior designers don't like technology mm-hmm. because the technology never makes it feel like magic. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, a senior designer, you sit down in front of a client with like some yellow trace paper and a fat black pen. Mm-hmm. You can draw yep. and bring people along a journey. And at the end of the meeting, you have some concepts and, and some maybe some little vignettes sketched out and a plan and some arrows and they all overlay. And the client's like, oh, wow, I can see this place. That and magical. that feels like magic, yes. right? That feels like magic. Yep. And it looks effortless because the senior designer has been sketching and sketching and sketching for four decades. Yep. And they, you know, their eye, their hand, their conversation, the way they can explain concepts is like, yep. and so, and Just then that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> and and that that's what you pay us. Then you, you're like, okay, I think I can trust this person with $100 million and build me a tower because they are in command of the issues. and. Whereas like then you open, and I won't name any software, but you know, you open a piece of software and it takes eight minutes to boot. And then, do you know what I mean? They just get so frustrated. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is get the the software to the, the level of power and sophistication of the pen. And so there's some really interesting ones. Like I think the, 
like obviously test fit, like Clifton, you know, Clifton's thing where you drag the node and it just goes, yep. that's starting to feel yeah. magic. That's starting to feel like you can use it in a conversation. But that, that instant, yeah, that, that feeling of lightness and magic has to be in the software. Like that's, that's for us the most important bit. Like if we don't get that, the rest sort of falls over. <laughs> there, there is a, another way to look at this too, which is depressing. Sorry. It's, okay. <laughs> I've, I've, I've been in situations where you, you will walk up to a, you know, a senior designer, like you just mentioned, who generally doesn't use technology um, and you'll hand them a model that you just 3D yeah. printed Yes, and it's like this is cool, right? Like, like uh, yeah. you know, there's there's a little bit of, uh, you know, they're a little bit numbed over by by the, everything going on in the world. But it's like, wow, cool. Okay, <laughs> how long did that take? And you're like, you know, it, well, it took 18 hours or whatever to print that. <laughs> and 18 hours? What the? Yeah, this is useless. And it's like, no, it's freaking magic. Like, what are you talking yeah, yeah, about? Yeah. It did it last yeah. night when I, when we were sleeping. We were sleeping. Like, yeah. <laughs> But there's this disconnect of what it actually takes to do a thing yes. that is magic, yes. right? And yes. and we see it outside with clients, and we see it inside as well with yeah. our with yeah. people on the team. Yeah, no, totally. And I think so. So yeah, I think there's like there's been this bifurcation of the industry where you've got your technical experts and then you've got your client facing designers. And I don't know if that's generational, like it's just you know mm-hmm. that. The tech arrived later. I feel that's part of it. I also feel it's a different skill set. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I sometimes say building equals narrative, like building equals data for some people mm-hmm. and building equals narrative for other people. But the way that I've seen competitions won, right, and capital deployed and spaces made at the design side, is it's about getting buy-in and communicating a story. You know, it's it's not... I don't know. And, and the yeah. technology is not designed for that, right? The technology is designed to get you to a, a documentation set, generally a PDF set. And, and so it's optimized there. And so there's this new, you know, this, this open space of, of that bit of design, like the story, the concepts, the bringing the community on board, the bringing the client on board, the de-risking, the, you know, which is, it requires data. It's data-driven. But it's much simpler data. Like it's it's simplicity driven as well. Because yeah. as soon as it gets too complicated, the conversation goes off the rails, yeah. and no decisions are made. And so at Giraffe, that's what we're trying to do: is sort of simplify, like reduce, reduce, reduce. Get yeah. anything that's not absolutely critical to the task of analyzing this place and coming up with a scheme that gets everyone happy. Eliminate that from the, the software. Let's take a break from this conversation and welcome back the sponsor for this episode, Arc IT. One of the things that I really like about the conversation that I had with the folks over at Arc IT was to learn about their Design Under Influence video series, which is really empowering you in the firm to be proactive about how IT is supporting your business. One of the ways that they're doing that is the Design Under Influence video series, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. And in particular, I was scrolling through all of the great training sessions that they're offering in these video series for people who are dealing with IT decisions and running their business. 
One of the things that stuck out to me was this article entitled Free IT Budget Spreadsheet Templates for Architects and Design Firms, providing you the downloadable spreadsheet that you can then go enter your equipment and the professional services that you may or may not need, depending on the staff within your company. And it really gives you a great overview into what it's going to take to run your business more effectively from an IT standpoint. And also be able to decide if that's really where your best value is served in your business. So, as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry. Their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, Speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc like architecture in the middle and click work with us so thanks very much to arc it for sponsoring this episode of the troxel podcast and now let's get back to our conversation and so you guys that's exactly what you're doing right i mean this to me kind of goes back and touches on some of the things you've already talked about where like you're doing competitions and everything is final 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 version right it's it's Yes. It's been through Photoshop. It's got the lens flares. That's it's, right. it's everybody's yeah. smiling. It's got, it's got a hot air balloon photoshopped in there. There's birds. All. Yeah. There's all, <laughs> all. And then then there's the tool you're building, which is yeah. it's not the final version. It is the work in progress. And by that I mean like you're encouraging people to interact with it to make decisions in real time, which yes. which is what Clifton's doing with TestFit, which is you know various tools are are. Are doing this similarly, which is yeah. again encouraging people to interact with and document decisions by intentionally leaving stuff out that you're not ready yes. for yet, right? And uh-huh. and really bringing it down to the minimal viable product that it actually needs to be to make yes. decisions along the way. And That's so right. there is some kind of vulnerability there, which is like, well, it's not done yet. But at the same time, this is how we make decisions. This is how uh-huh. we move forward. And you're also, not, by encouraging that interaction with the client, you are getting them on board. You are building consensus because they're a part of that process and they're owning totally. those decisions with you right then and memorializing. Yes. 
Yeah. Have you heard of the, the blue duck technique that the advertisers use? No. So when you do an advertising pitch, you put a blue duck in something and then the client says, love it, but uh, what's that blue duck about? Can we get rid of it? And you say, oh, what a great idea. And then because they've then made the decision, it's theirs, right? <laughs> and there's, there's, there is that, right? That is true. That's a true thing that if people feel actually engaged and that they could say something and get feedback. Yeah. They feel much more comfortable yeah. about what's happened because they've seen, they've seen with their eyes, they've got evidence that they're being considered. Yeah. But, but so you're exactly, that's exactly what we're, we're doing is we're building this software that we hope is as simple but expressive as a pen mm-hmm. because you see a pen is so flexible. You jump from plan to elevation to diagram to 3D to texture to, you know, you don't like it, you rip it out. Mm-hmm. The pen is so expressive. And so with software, it's very complicated because you, you're like you're trying to build simplicity and power, but you can't you can't limit it. You know, it you like a line, like this is a debate that we had with Giraffe. This is a really interesting debate. Okay. So like, do you draw when you draw on a computer, you, you only create data. That's all you can create. Mm-hmm. So like everything is like points, lines, surfaces, you know, of some description, extrusions or B reps or lofts or whatever you call them, right? right? Nerves. But then they represent things. So, like, uh, you know, this surface represents a wall, right? Do you tell your user that they're drawing a surface or do you tell your user that you're drawing a wall, right? Um, And we've had this debate a lot. We're currently on you draw buildings, but you're actually just drawing polylines, but they represent buildings. For an educated user, if you say to them, Guys, get to the fundamental of this. This is just a database and it's just some, there's a geometry column and then there's attributes, right? That's all it is. And so you can draw this, you can draw this polyline and you can tell us that it's a wall. But then if you change your mind and you want it to equal a light, you just like delete wall and you write light and it's a light, right? Yep. And so I think a lot of what happens is that. People, okay, so the core technology there, it's just a database. Like if you get SQL, like you kind of understand it. Like it's all it is, is just tabular data. That's all Revit is. That's It's all anything can be. Tabular data is so good, right? If you actually treat it as tabular data, a lot of the complexity disappears. Like the command ribbon and like I've got this special wall configurating wizard. You don't need it because you're just like, okay, all a wall is is a piece of geometry that we're calling a wall. Mm-hmm. And if I can't, I can't get it to work as a, as a surface, I'll just call it a line, but I'll give it a height attribute, right? And then this line represents the wall, right? And you're suddenly very free. But that requires the user to sort of meet the technology where it is and actually understand that it's a, a database under the hood, which, which, which turns out, I think, currently is actually wrong. So currently we're saying, okay, this is not data. These things actually treat them as their representations. So take them as their meaning. So draw a building. And, and that is, we think, the right combination of expressivity because you can draw any sort of geometry and call it a building, but also simplicity because you don't have to. I mean, for me, it's more complicated, but for a user who's, who's not into databases and doesn't understand database design, it's simpler because they don't have to think about that. So it's simplicity plus expressivity. These like core, yeah, it's like sort of philosophy of language questions for computers. This is, I think, where the, the really interesting stuff is, is happening. Like you remember when Apple went skeuomorphic or, or whatever they call it, yes. you know, and yeah. then they went out of skeuomorphism and it's like, it's the same debate. Like, are you operating with a phone or are you operating with something that's pretending to be a calculator and you should think of it as a calculator? Yeah. 
And if you think of it as a phone and an operating system on a bit of hardware, it actually liberates your mind, but it's a jump to make. You've got to be educated. So I think that's the same. That was a super important point that they had. That was the bridge to get or where they are now, right? Like it, it had to happen that way to get people to adopt it as the replacement for the physical thing so that yes, they could yes. then take away that layer of familiarity and make uh-huh. it do something different, better, different, you know, like there, there's so many directions it could go, but it's like, well, a calendar doesn't have to just be a calendar anymore. It can also exactly. do all this exactly. other stuff because yeah. it doesn't have to have the fine Corinthian leather top no, area. and that's and it's just data on a database. Right. It's just there's a date column, and and so and you, do you do you know Notion like yeah, the, the I Notion? Use Notion uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Notion is kind of at that point where you're like, hey, I don't want this heading to be a heading anymore. I want it to be a, a page. toggle menu, yeah, and you just but doing doing and yep. and so Notion is like a very mature piece. Of, and I don't know if you know Brett Victor and like um, all of this stuff was like theorized very, very clearly very early on, like in the 80s or even in the 60s, like the mother of all demos, like this Doug Engelbart or something like that gave this this demo in, I think, 1968, 69, where he showed folder structure, a mouse, live collaboration on a document. Mm. And because they were treating the computer as just data, Mm -hmm. right? They hadn't then gone this overlay of how do we make it digestible to a mass audience, but then that making it digestible actually made it very confusing because like, like I always use, I can't name software names, right? But there's certain, there's some softwares like, you're like, why can I only access this piece of data through this weird, right? like I have to pretend it's a PDF and then I can access the data. Just right. give it to me as a piece of data. Right. But because they're trying to make it digestible, they're then locking it in. Overcomplicated yeah. it. Right? right. And so we're doing the same thing now. So I, I empathize with them a lot. Right. But <laughs> Uh, I think it'll it'll come across and people will see things as pure data. And at that point, ideally, the the artists of the medium will be able to make with that data narrative because that to me is the important thing. Like the data, fantastic, good to have. But what you're trying, like coming back to the original drumbeat is like, how does this data help you serve your community by pouring the concrete in the shape that's going to make them flourish, Right. And and so and 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 so the data has to somehow get there. And if and and right now, I, I it's not obvious how it does. Like I think, do you know the Stripe guy? What's his name? Patrick Collison, I think, is the CEO of Stripe, mm-hmm. and he's got this great little list. He's like very frustrated about things. Or he's very interested that things take longer to build than they used to. And like the Empire State Building, yeah, I think was finished in like a year or like a year and a day or something crazy, like yeah. And they didn't have BIM. They just had like some, you know, some sheets and some pens, right? right? And they executed. And that's a, that's a, you know, grade A bit of office space, right? You can, totally. Stood the test of time. Yeah. It has. So, so wow. a lot of the data I think is sort of for my, you know, my passion, my interest is how do you focus it to the moment of, of decision, right? Where you have everyone in the room. Mm-hmm. Can you make the data dance at that point in real time? as fast as people's brains can work as expressively as a pen. And if you can, wow, then, then I think you can, you can really start making a difference in terms of the way cities are conceived of and, and the possibility space that can be explored collaboratively. Do you feel like this leads to like analysis paralysis though, with all of the, because it exposes 
this minutiae because it exposes the analysis? Yeah, it's a good question. Does good it question. does I, it just get you into this loop that is hard to break out of? Because like what if what if what if? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's generative design in a nutshell, right? It's like here's a thousand. It's like great. Now I'm going to spend the next eighteen hours exactly. sifting or you know trying because I have way too many, right? So hey, that's that's just, that's just one three D print, you know? Just <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I reckon um, we're not generative like. Giraffe doesn't do, you know, in like there's a lot of generative firms, you know, Space Maker and Archistar. And I love what they're doing in the sense it's amazing. You click on something and you get these options and you can look at it and they're like, they're compliant. Like it's great. I, for precisely the reason you just sort of said, we're not doing it. We're just a sketching tool, Mm -hmm. right? Which means we're massive expressivity. If you want to draw a building that is actually the letter R and you want it to, you can just do that and it's just a sketching tool. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't constrain you. It doesn't generate. It, it just does what it says, but very, very quickly for precisely that reason that I think, how do you move decisions very quickly mm-hmm. through large groups of people? You diagram, you step things out. Like look at Bjark Engels, like his, you know, his famous, like, you know, step one, step two, like stretch, squash, slice, blip, 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 right. up. it's the building, right? Yeah. Yeah. That is very powerful. People get that. They get the story. They understand it. They say at the end, I get it. Yes. That I is see the, why you That is the after the fact cartoon set, right? Oh, no, yeah. it to- totally yeah. is. But as skilled, and this is going to be, I reckon this is the future. The future is, it belongs to these people that are like, with giraffes. So where we've seen it, they just draw the, they say, okay, what's important to you guys? Oh, you want to connect. This site's too big. We need to put a road through it. Where should we put it? You draw the road. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Now we need a clubhouse. Where do we put the clubhouse? Do we put it up here? Do we put it down here? Oh, let's put it here. And you literally build this thing up in front of people's eyes. And if you're a skilled facilitator, I don't know if you've ever seen like these grade A facilitators and they are, oh, they're so good. Like they do it for a profession. They do leadership change. You know, I think that skill is going to become more and more important for designers because the facilitator is actually knows more than the entire audience. Like they've studied up, they're three steps ahead of the conversation, but they're steering the conversation, making sure that all the right voices are heard, that all the right issues are considered. And then very seldom they will like offer a corrective, you know, nudge or something. And I think that's the future. Pull it back. And I think that's what an architect in the future is going to be. And if, you know, if it's giraffe or whatever, the software will be there, yeah. and they'll they'll diagram and and build and query and consult and engage and get feedback in one move, and then at the end they will have a BIM model. They'll have a proper database so that, from the analytic perspective, like all the solar, the wind, you know, all these things that we do, will have already been incorporated into that decision rather than coming like way later, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, so. So we're not generative precisely because I do think I do think you know getting hundreds of options thrown at you is more paralyzing than it is enabling. Yeah, especially for the kind of projects that sort of giraffe generally gets used on, which is kind of big bigger projects. Yeah, that facilitation skill that you talk about, I agree. It's it's so so important to. It seems to me like like that is the thing where architects value actually lies and it is not in the drawing of the details or the determining the LOD on a model or which views go on which sheets or any of that stuff, which architects spend an inordinate amount of time 
doing. I, compl- I completely agree. And the, the, that's, that's what I'm, you know, that's what we're trying to liberate. Like, I, I think that activity doesn't get done much because, you know, developers are trying to compress their consults, consulting spend and it seems like, you know, frippery and waste. And so, I don't know, yeah. architects have sort of retreated to this technical land and then they can draw the drawbridge up and say, well, you can't even open Revit, so, you know, give me a, you know, your, your machine's not strong enough, so <laughs> at least give me that. All right. Um, I, I, I completely, and I, I think it's, it has to be done from a human perspective. Like, you wouldn't want to live in a world designed by machines. Like, I, I, at the deepest philosophical, you know, level, I want, like, I love Christopher Alexander. Like, I, you know, that guy is incredibly, you know, for, I've got all his books. I read them. I pour over them, right? I'm, I'm looking at them right now. Um, but his, his methodology of, like, how do you evaluate a design? You really, you've got to let it speak to you and experience it. And, and then you put your, you see what aspects of it, like, in, increase your feeling of being a human, that we need that we need more and more of that we don't need less and less of that i don't need more algorithm in my like my whole twitter feed everything is algorithm you know like let's get some humanity back and if we can do that paradoxically using technology like i don't i'm not scared of technology but i'm just you know then that would be that'd be good for me (laughs) interesting yeah so okay so going back to kind of this this computational design course where I would imagine I, I've I've taken some of those, but I would imagine that a lot of those courses are all about the algorithm. Like that's all it's about. It's all that the designer, the the student cares about is like figuring out yeah. better ways to do the algorithm. How and obviously I, I think you coming from practice and teaching that course really can help a student kind of navigate those more human aspects of practicing architecture, but being incredibly excited about technology. So how did you help them kind of learn to navigate this profession where we have this huge spectrum of people yes. who are interested or disinterested in technology and where the profession is likely going versus yeah. where it's never going to go back to how, how, were were you able to facilitate that and and get them to feel good about that and and feel like pursuing that further or was it a difficult because I mean, I think we're still in a time where it's difficult for people who have this tech passion in architecture to find a place in well-established firms. And I'm totally generalizing, right? There's lots yeah, and lots yeah. of teams within firms, but I think they, it's still a, a, a pretty small minority of people navigating mm. within these firms who have to figure that out. So, yeah, okay. So that that's interesting. So I almost, okay, I had like two things that I would, sort of bang on incessantly the first is understand the fundamentals like don't look at grasshopper don't look at rhino and grasshopper as technologies look through them to the technology underneath right which is there's vector math there's some data there's some geometry with some attribution once you understand that once you get that those deep principles all the software is the same mm-hmm. because Revit's also just geometry plus data. Mm-hmm. You know, PostGIS, QGIS, any kind of GIS, any, you know, it's all just, it's attribution. And if you understand these core core technologies and, and some basic math, right, you know, which you can learn in, like, I don't know, year 10 sort of math, um, you are incredibly well-equipped to, to understand everything. Because who knows, is Grasshopper going to be, 
you know, the thing you need to learn in five years or in 10 years because the state of flux is massive. Right. But the actual technology doesn't change that much. Like, you know, email is 50 years old. The internet is, you know, older than that. I think it's old, right? And they were still making HTTP requests and APIs, you know. So if you get comfortable at that base foundational level, you are free for your whole career because at the end of the day, it's just going to be tabular data. But always bang out on that. And the second thing I would bang on about was understand, try to understand your place in the profession. Because I don't think, I think architecture is not a caring profession for young people. Mm. Like it doesn't look after them that well. And every firm I've worked at, you know, is, is trying their best, is doing that. But it's just the nature of it because the deadlines are so intense the projects come and go you know they're managing cash flow like teams swell and you know it's boom bust type stuff and so it's a really difficult profession and it's very ego driven as well right and and it comes back to like what the actual nature of design is because it is narrative people that are able to to tell good narratives become good designers and and, and so people who are confident in their design decisions in their aesthetic they will often just win based on confidence Mm -hmm. right and you know like like is it meant to be like curvy like a zaha or like boxy like a chipperfield ah who knows right the client doesn't know but whoever's like convincing will win right and there is i mean i don't know that's a whole other discussion about whether there's an objective beauty or not but you know all of that stuff is would be beautiful but it's very much about selling it's a very it's a pitchy profession it's about selling Mm -hmm. concepts and ideas and, and that sort of comes all the way through. So I would always say you guys have to be able to sell yourself. Mm-hmm. And sort of coming back to what you just said around computational designers not having a place, I actually am very, I felt very um, comforted for my students that they were learning the technology stuff because for the next, I don't know, decade or, so, or at least, I think, it gives them an edge, right? Because if you get the fundamentals you know, it doesn't matter if your boss doesn't know what you're doing, but you use Dynamo to rename the doors and the door schedule or, or whatever, you know, whatever laborious, boring task, you know, X, you automate it, then you are of value and, and you have something. And, and so you can, you can sort of have a, le- a level of security uh, in your career and in your job. So I guess it was a fear-based economy. I'm sort of saying like, just build yourself an advantage. If you, but for if- a young person... If you listen to Clifton talk about that, that's why he got fired, or I don't know if it was fired or let go, because he could he got tired of drawing these plans in in CAD manually. So he developed a routine that would do it for him, and they were like, "You did what? You're out of here!" Yeah, like, oh really? Yeah. Okay, so I've okay, geez, it's the right, whole, I've it's, never had that. It's a whole spectrum. It's it's incredible, right? Yeah. Most of the most of the firms I've worked at, if if there's if there's a clear productivity enhancement, yeah. there, there's a lot of praise for that. And it's like, great, like what next? Yeah, I think it was more of a threat, right? It's like, you're going right. to obsolete me. <laughs> oh, okay, right. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe. I, I'm reading into it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, but I mean, but it, it, geez, that's, I mean, that's, there will always be a, I think, like a job for someone who is clearly skilled. Yeah. So, and and I think it's a it's a unique part of the profession where a young person can excel and lead yeah because the you know the, the older generations the technology wasn't there so they look to the young generations to lead this yeah. this segment of the practice so it's an, an amazingly freeing place to be 
but it requires that courage because you need to sell yourself and say, look, this is all value. It's not, you know, like, let me free here. Let me bring value to the practice. I would try and get them to be very, very confident in their abilities at a deep level. So beyond even the, you know, because if you put on your resume, like Grasshopper, Revit, you know, the Microsoft suite, like that's, that's not technical proficiency, right? right? Because that comes and goes, like get legit proficient, understand the principles of what you're dealing with, of the computer, and then use that to get into a, a career that'll be wonderful for you. Cause it's a great wedge. Like the technology is a great, and it's a very, um, it's fertile, it's dynamic, no one knows what's happening. And so whenever there's that kind of, it's not static, it's not like, well, you're going to have to draw sections for six years and then you can draw plans for 12 and then you can sort of come to your first client meeting. Because it's so dynamic, you, you can be, you can take a lot of liberties, you can be really free. And I think that's, that's very exciting. I think if you're, um, if you're not a, like a bit of a risk taker or a... Um, then technology, you know, it's probably moving too quick at the moment. Like I think people love the dynamism of it. Yeah. I think what you're talking about there too, it's very entrepreneurial in that sense of of pitching. And it's my hope that architecture schools are training their students to be more entrepreneurial because that to me is a much more of a leadership position Totally in the profession moving forward. Because if you are out there constantly pitching ideas and communicating, kind of honing those skills and then being able to connect dots because you do understand those underlying basic building blocks of what these things of what's possible. And then by pitching ideas and seeing what sticks, somebody shows interest, then you can go build a thing that does does that. Yes. But you don't have to build the thing first and show them only only to get cut down. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think yeah, I, I you know, I would if I went back in time, I would use that exact word as well. I think that's a really good entrepreneur because I think an entrepreneur, what they do is they're very empathetic to their customer. Mm. So they've got to understand the world through their customer's eyes mm. and see their frustrations, see their fears, you know, and then say, hey, I can meet your problems. I, you don't need to raise these objections. I've, I've ameliorated what I'm doing precisely to accommodate this, this, this. And which means that your brain has to be constantly system thinking and, and you, you know, get out of your perspective, get in like a whole architecture more than almost anything else. I mean, I think that's why where architects have an unfair advantage is we, you know, you're so used to think as a structural engineer, think as the fire person, think as the flood guy, the, think as the, the, tra- the concrete layer who's going to have to stick his hand in that detail and, and, you know, so that there is a natural empathy in the profession as, you know, as opposed to like, you know, like a surgeon, like, you know, they're anesthetized and they come in and they chop, chop, right? And right. then they're out right. and they sort of, or a fighter pilot. I don't know. I, you know I, I'm, I'm generalizing here. But I think, you know, leaning into that, I think is actually entrepreneurial because it helps you identify problems, think systemically. And then if you have the courage, like if you've got a core thing that you know you're highly confident at or competent at rather, then you can you then just speak into that system. Like despite there being all those voices, just ha- just go in there and just you know swing for the fence. I yeah. think it's important to do, but but difficult. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we start wrapping up here. I I there's there's a line here in in that email that you sent me that I don't want to pass up. And when you when you're talking about no such thing as a, a code compliant building, I mean obviously there is, but all compliance is negotiated, and mm. that's a that's a really interesting point. And I think that speaks directly to a lot of the tools that we see coming out, uh, which is mm-hmm. 
there seems to be a push for push button kind of solutions in which the computer has all of that stuff all figured out. And I think that this plays nicely with the narrative that you just said, where the architect has to think as not only the end user, but also all of the other players on the team as the development mm. is happening. And there's a, there's a serious human element there, right? There's a negotiation mm. that's constantly happening. You're building a mm-hmm. narrative. You're building an argument in many cases so that you mm. can get things moving along and and you are basically decoding the code so that you can put together a narrative that quote unquote solves it so that you can get mm. the approval to build the thing. And mm-hmm. and most of the time it is kind of a interpretation of that code and an argument then upon which that is built on to mm. to get the sign off. So maybe you can jump into this and, and why you think that this negotiated compliance is the key to understanding how the profession is going to look in the future. Yeah, okay. I think I think this is super important. So the first thing is the code is an outcome of a design process. It doesn't like arrive, you know, from the sky. Right. Right. It is designed. It is designed that the, you know, for example, if the code is it's a hundred stories everywhere, there will be someone who's done an infrastructure analysis to figure out how big the water pipe is to get all of those, right? Or how many schools will need to be planned, you know. And so that whatever you do at the building level kind of happens at the city level. And the result of that is the code. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's and so cyclical, I think, right. It's, it's circular in that way. It's uh, exactly. So, yeah. so that's the first thing. And the second thing I think is that the code is a macro tool, right? So they, they're saying over these 400 hectares, like X, Y, Z, and it always fails on the micro, right? Because if they, they're not, they're not considering your site with its ancient tree Back and its beautiful cases, rock. Right, yeah. It's all edge cases, right. right? It's all edge cases. And they know that. They're not, it's not silly. Yeah. They're not, they, they are sufficient. And if you actually look at how code are written, they will say, here is the high-level principles of what this code is trying to achieve. Population growth, allow for an aging population, blah. Here are the sort of second-order principles about how we do that encourage two-level homes or one-level homes, setbacks to preserve, you know, street, da-da-da-da. And here's some even more detailed things. It has to be three metres. And then in almost every code in every jurisdiction I've ever worked in, it'll say, if you don't like it, you know, you know subject to a good argument coming up to the, the high-level principles. Mm-hmm. And so the code itself is intrinsically argumentative it's built for argument yeah. it's 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 built it's far more like a lawyer's argument than it is a piece of code like of you know geometry or, or computer algorithm right and it, it has to be less like a math problem right it's all edge cases like that's such a great way of putting it the second thing is and this the, the architects really need to to broaden their view i think here right and come out go and look at how developers acquire sites how they you know, re- get them rezoned, they lobby, you know, like even the way the West was won, you know, like the, the railways were federally funded across the United States. It was a bonanza. Like, you know, if they built the railway through your land as opposed to his, you would make like a billion, right? right? right. And so they were constant lobbying about what these infrastructure moves are. And so, and, and developers do that, you know, at every level. Like I'm doing a little reno now in my house. And so the setbacks are three meters, and I phone the council and say, hey, will you, 
like this is a, like this is like a hundred thousand dollar reno. It's like nothing, right? It's not like a, a billion dollar project. The guy's like, yeah, if, if you can make a good argument around this, like, yes, we can be flexible. Generally, we, we give 10%. Like, so I'm negotiating right. with the council over like a, a back fence kind of thing. Yeah. Right? Right. And, and so, and they expect the developers to come in and say, hey, look, if, if you give me four levels, I'll build you a library and a school. Let's do an, or can you put the train here? I think it's great. I'll pay for the station. Because cities are human. Like, mm-hmm. it is a human thing. Like, that whole process uh, the economics of it, the incentives of it, the, the the organizational institutional structures, the entrepreneurial spirits of the developers, you know, their appetite for risk, the way banks finance, the way governments are elected and make decisions, it's all negotiation the whole way through. You can't you can't get around it. Right. And and that's what's wonderful about it. That's why these artifacts, these cities, they form, you know, based on this like tons of human effort, like these layers and layers of interests and push and pull and, and, and it forms these artifacts that are really, really, you know, complex and emergent and beautiful, far more beautiful than any single human mind would ever come up with. Right. And it's because, because there's, there's more minds making decisions at more points than sort of, I think almost any other activity, Yeah. Um, which is, which I love, right. I love that. So I, I'm not saying it's a bad thing that it's negotiated. I think it's amazing. But it, but it, I think it's it's a strange view to me that there's like this like this maths you know they've they've got a little maths equation that if you could just teach the computer to comply with because like I think I think it's it's, it's because generative is so and, and AI is so heavily marketed not just by the architectural profession but by Google by you know like we've be, beat AlphaGo at Go or whatever you know AlphaGo beat you know yep. the world's best. The developer can just, you know, someone in the game will just overtip the board or pour water on the guy, you know, on the circuit of the supposing AI. It's not constrained. Yeah. The, the the clever designers, the entrepreneurs there reframe the problems and redefine the constraints in almost every discussion. And so if you're try, trying to teach a computer to like obey certain constraints, you can just reframe them. You yeah. can just re reconstrain the problem. And I think that's that's what's magic about it. You re- reframe it, uh, like change the constraints and you get something yeah. beautiful. So, so I, I think on sort of almost every level, I feel strongly that, that we should lean into negotiation, um, but that it's the wrong, and it's the wrong path to try and sort of, I guess, get this cold, rational, you know, one, one button click and get a, um, a compliant building. How many times, I mean, me going, like coming up through the architectural profession and early, early on, every single project has some existential threat, right? Like it's, this project is over today. Like it's not going to move forward. There's some new thing that nobody foresaw coming. Boom, it killed Uh it. Uh Those always get solved every single time. They always get solved. It will get solved every single time. And I think one thing that you can watch yourself kind of go through this process over the years is early on in your career, it's like that is some very stressful stuff. You're freaking out. You might not sleep that night. O- older in your career, and you're like, oh yeah, we'll figure it out, right? Like, oh, <laughs> completely different on. approach. And because you've you've done it so many times, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, but it yeah. happens on every project. This project right. is not moving forward this week. Guess what? In a week, like we're on, we got some other bigger problem because we solved that's that right. one, and now we're on to the next one. And it does. It happens over and over and over again through this kind of negotiation process. That you're exactly. and, and, it's, and it's in everyone's interest for this thing to finish. Like it's not in the city's interest to say, hey, you can't achieve this three-foot setback. Therefore, we will leave this ground barren. Right. Like that doesn't make sense. They want to see something. They need something yeah. there, right? Yeah. So 
Yes, exactly. I think that's a, I just got a point about that because like, I can't believe you said that's exactly how I see the world. I think when you're in experienced hands, design is actually linear. Like you, we always say it's not a linear process and it kind of not, but in experienced hands, like an experienced designer will say, yeah, like, oh yeah, we'll solve that. Like, I, I guess it's a problem, but I, you know, it's yeah. not a problem. Later. It feels, we'll feels devastating, yeah. but we'll figure it out. Like right. that's, that's a step for later down the line. Like yes. let's not. And I think, um, so that's what G- Giraffe is, tr- you know, like trying to do that as well, because the designer, the, the experienced designer that's bringing comfort to their client by making it seem easy, by linearizing it, by abstracting over like ambiguity, like just what they're doing is they're cutting stuff out. They're not adding stuff in. It's not like they're coming with like a detailed, coordinated set of services and structure at like at day two, because they're like, of course, we'll coordinate the, the structure of the, 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 you know, the services. Of course, that's going to happen. Like when the big question to. here is, yeah, when it needs to. And I think, so that's why we're trying to get the software simple enough that it's at the right, you know, stage of the, of the, of the project. I think that's a very good insight. Yeah. That's, that's what I love about what I'm seeing from you guys and, and several others that have come up today and other times. It's, you're not trying to do it all for everyone mm. all the time. It's like, I'm going to take this piece of the puzzle. I understand that I am a piece of the puzzle and I'm not trying to be the whole puzzle. Whereas yeah. I think the, you know, the, the giant conglomerates of the past, they've always wanted to be the whole puzzle. They want to be everything mm. to everyone. And so therefore the pieces don't quite fit together perfectly all the time. And I love that. a lot of yeah. them get neglected over years yeah. and yeah, other right. shiny ones yeah. with that are newer buzzwords <laughs> get all the attention. But it's yeah. it's very much uh, to me an exciting time to watch how our profession is being upended, and I think it disruption is an appropriate name because of the way that it's kind of been posed by Christensen, which is that you don't see it coming because it's just doing this one little thing over here, and you don't even notice it doing it uh-huh. until all of a sudden one day it's like boom, boom, <laughs> it took over, right? Uh, because it did it so well. And you listen to your customers and what they wanted and the problems that they had and the problems that they needed to be solved. And, and yes. you, you just do that. You just execute on that day after day after day. Well, and I think that's, I, I love that point. And I think that like humility, like saying, let's do our bit. Let's not try and do every bit. Yeah. I think is a great quality for a business to have, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, I love that. Like I love going into a room as a designer and just knowing that around the table, there's like all these master's degrees in stuff that I don't understand. Like, you know, yes. and, and just being You're like, so okay, happy that they love to do that thing. That's right. And you guys let's solve this issue now. Right. And I don't have to give the structural solution. You give the structural solution. Uh, that's really, I think, enlivening. And it, it, I don't know, it's a beautiful experience because it shows how people can work together. And you kind of want that to be replicated at the software level so that, do you know what I mean? Like that, that would be cool. Um, And it's even better when those other people around the table are excited by the, because it's a hard problem to solve, right? Those are the people that you want to work with, that I want to work with. No, no, hundred percent. Yes. They're the ones who are willing to take on a challenge and they're, Uh you know, there's like that old, I think it was in the book Mindset by Carol Dweck. And I, I think that was her name. Um, but but she, she, you know, they did the, the old marshmallow test, which was like, put a marshmallow in front of a kid and say, if you don't eat it, 
I'll bring you another one and you'll get two, right? But so, so it was a test of, of gratification. Do you need instant like they, gratification? Oh, they have to wait there for like a minute or something. It they? was like 15 <laughs> minutes. Yeah, whatever it was. 15, right? But it yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. it just, it was like, okay, how are you wired? Are you wired yes. for instant gratification or are you wired for the challenge of, or uh-huh, uh-huh. Same, same thing with word puzzles or it was like, you'll put a, a word find in front of a kid and the kid will either be like, I hate these or they'll be like, yes, I can't wait to yes. solve this puzzle. And and those uh-huh. are the people that I, that I think we're talking about here. It's like people who mm-hmm. want to solve that puzzle and apply their specific knowledge to help make it happen. And, and you're all pieces of puzzle. You're all pieces within the bigger puzzle. Yes. It's pretty cool. And, and what's so cool about tech, right? Is that at the moment it's all, it's mainly those people because it's so new. It's so complex. It's so challenging. It like self-selects people that are like that stuff, right? So it's such a vibrant part of the industry yeah. because, you you know, you can't, if you don't like ch- challenges or, or ambiguity or this sort of, you just will never get into it. Yeah. And so sort of almost everyone you meet is doing something really interesting and challenging and are, you know, like they're the word puzzle people. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Tool builders, pop, problem Tool builders, solvers. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Well, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. And for being so generous with your time. I know we went went a little longer than we had planned for, but uh, it's just been a great conversation. So Rob, thank you so much for the time today. I wanted to give you the opportunity to just let people know where they can follow along and see what you guys are up to. And I will put all the links to everything that you mentioned in the show notes so people don't have to remember it. They can just click it. Yep, www.giraffe.build is our website and, and sort of go from there. Love to have, you know, share what we're doing. Awesome. And thanks, Evan. It's been a really great conversation. Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast. And once again, I would like to thank Arc IT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at getarcit, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T.com. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E Troxel. Talk to you soon.